You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Okay, we are started indeed. Um, this is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv, and I'm with Rajiv Seti. Hello, Rajiv. Hi, Glenn. Rajiv is a professor of economics at Barnard College, Columbia University. He's a, a frequent guest in the past at The Glenn Show here, and uh, an economist a uh, friend of mine, a co-author on some research papers and so on, and um, I'm a professor of economics at Brown, and uh, we're talking here in the wake of the um, national crisis that has been engendered by the uh, COVID-19 um, coronavirus, the new coronavirus pandemic, uh, which has uh, sort of washed over the globe, in fact, uh, and uh, has fixed all of our attention. Uh, both Rajiv and I are uh, teaching and carrying on our professional activities from our uh, respective homes. Uh, we are, as it were, sheltering in place. Um, I gather you have a general kind of lockdown situation in New York City. Is that right, Rajiv? I don't think quite been imposed yet, but within the next 48 hours, we're expecting a lockdown. Um, uh, we're expecting to be told to shelter in place. Uh, but, yeah, but the streets are empty. Uh, most businesses are closed. It's, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a ghost town already. Uh, I wanted to talk to you, Rajiv, because uh, without wanting to unduly flatter you, you're one of the most thoughtful um, economists um, and social science observers that I'm, um, I'm familiar with. And uh, I myself am, kind of overwhelmed with the intellectual challenges of trying to uh, figure out what the what the best path forward is for society here and how to make decisions about um, the important uh, public health and public policy questions in front of us. I mean, there are a number of different dimensions to this. The foremost, of course, is the public health challenge itself of stymieing the damage from the epidemic, of stemming the tide, uh, of uh, protecting ourselves uh, from the uh, worst case possibilities of, uh, uh, of public distress associated with the uh, pandemic. Um, another set of concerns comes out of thinking about the economy, the impact on economic activity of our public health responses, how those costs are to be shared amongst uh, the citizenry, um, what supports can be given to the most distressed uh, both in terms of the cost of health care, but also in terms of the cost of um, the economic uh, downturn associated with our, our sheltering in place and such. Um, and then there's a set of concerns having to do with our institutions and our values, uh, since uh, any actions that we take here in one way or another raise questions about liberty and uh, social justice. And I know you've been thinking about that. Yeah, as we as have we all, then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, where to begin? Um, here's one set of considerations that I actually raised, and I had a conversation with Heather McDonald here, uh, and I've had one with Larry Kotlikoff, which will have been posted by the time people see this. Um, Heather, as you know, is a, a social critic, a pundit at the Manhattan Institute. She's a conservative and a contrarian, and uh, she was um, uh, at some pains to point out that we might be overreacting. This is the idea that we're in a panic, uh, and in a panic, um, people are some feeling compelled to do things out of fear that uh, they don't properly gauge the cost of what they do. Um, we are weighing the public health costs of the pandemic growing more intense? Uh, should we not shut down economic activity against the economic costs of foregone income and uh, dislocation from shutting down activity? How to strike that balance? Is there a risk that we might overreact? Um, and uh, she was raising that concern. Um, and uh, Larry Kotlikoff was talking about um, the essential requirement of limiting the spread of the virus and uh, recommending that uh, basically we shut down entirely economic activity as much as possible for an extended period of time, long enough to 
be able to stymie the, the the growth of the epidemic and sort of nip it in the bud. And if we lost two weeks or even two months of economic activity uh, in the interest of uh, stopping the uh, the epidemic, uh, that would have been worth the cost. And I really don't know how to think about balancing these uh, benefits and costs. What do you think? Well, those are two sort of uh, opposite views in some sense, right? Uh, uh, that we ought to be closer to business as usual from Heather McDonald and we should shut down completely for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's one small Italian town that has managed to basically reduce new cases to zero just by testing everybody, not by shutting down economic activity, but just by testing everybody. Now, and course, isolating the people who test positive. Yeah, which I think we're about 3%, uh, uh, if I'm remembering right. I hope I'm not terribly wrong with that. But, you know, just basically uh, basically testing everybody, finding out, you know, who's positive and isolating those. And, and, and the rest can basically continue as normal as long as they don't have any contact with the outside or with those who are uh, isolated. And so testing, it seems to me, is the crucial thing is, you know, there has to be just absolutely massive widespread testing because a lot of a lot of the transmission is taking place from people who are not symptomatic. Um, you know, as much as five days before they show any kind of symptoms. And uh, and so just shutting down economic activity, I don't think is going to uh, solve this problem um, as long as, you know, as long as the transmission is proceeding uh, and, and it's sort of largely concealed or at least partially concealed. Um, but uh, I mean, what about the logistics of universal testing? How, how do you actually get that done in a country of 300 million people? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I, I mean, I don't have a very good answer to that because partly because we don't have testing capacity of that right. scale anyway, way, way short of that. Um, Korea apparently, you know, managed to test a very large number of people that, that, that seems to be the case study that we should be emulating. Uh, on on many grounds, they they had a fatality rate that's lower than just about anywhere else. Uh, they've managed to control the spread, and they have uh, tested ex- you know extremely widely. They apparently um, apparently the first Korean case and the first U.S. case were were pretty much on the same day. They they you know they they uh, but their response to it was you know at least with regard to testing was extremely aggressive. Now. We don't at this point seem to have the capacity for that. And then there's the other issue about whether or not it's logistically feasible, you know, with people moving. But uh, but uh, like in this town in Italy, we have to just sort of partition the population into into uh, um, sort of regional uh, uh, clusters and, and and test within those clusters and try to reduce mobility between clusters. Now, I understand that actually the distribution in space of the incidence of infection is fairly uneven and that yeah. you know half yeah. the cases are accounted for by a relative handful of localities yeah at the moment at the moment but then yeah at the moment haven't been tested yeah so that you know there are yeah it's it's still we still don't know whether the localities that appear not to show like west, west virginia for example because we haven't tested uh, we haven't tested we haven't tested much yeah but regarding the economic, you know, response. Uh, excuse me, just one more thing. Yeah. Wouldn't you have to repeat the testing? It wouldn't be enough just to test at one point in time. You'd have to repeat the testing provided that you had leakage, right? If you, if you were able to really isolate regionally, if you were able to, you know, separate spatially uh, people, um, then presumably those who are negative will stay negative unless there's a, you know, unless there's contact. If you've got a, you know, if you, if you've got a, uh, uh, a particular geography where you've tested everybody, you've identified the positives, the the, the negatives could pretty much go about their business, it seems to me. But but again, I'm not an epidemiologist, and and you know, I don't know whether reinfections can occur, and you know, um, so so there are lots of complications here. But regarding yeah. the, regarding the issue of overreaction, it seems as if um, it seems as if the the dangers are the you know of underreaction are greater it's you know if we do happen to overreact we wouldn't know it uh, you know if we if we react to the degree in which we manage to um avoid the worst case projections we wouldn't know looking back whether or not the reaction was too much or not uh, you know if if it's effective uh, we may look back and say oh we went too far but but um, honestly, it seems to me now 
that there isn't uh, overreaction and there isn't a sense of panic. People are following these directions to the extent that they are. They're following them quite calmly, um, you know, um, coping quite well. I don't see much evidence of, of actual panic, uh, uh, except insofar as claims are being made that directives uh, to shut down businesses, shut down bars, restaurants are um, are overreactions. Uh, you know, I, I don't well, see this panic driven. They seem to be quite calmly executed. Here, here's what I mean uh, by overreaction. Um, let me give an analogy. So we've had some air travel safety concerns that have led us to impose a rather draconian uh, security regime in uh, air transport. Everyone has to be screened. Uh, we're concerned, of course, to prevent uh, terrorists from uh, using the airplane as a weapon or something of that sort. Uh, what's the objective probability of that event occurring? Well, prior to 9-11, in retrospect, we can see that that probability was high enough that the cumulative cost of having everyone screened carefully before they got on an airplane is worth paying. What's that probability now? Is it the same number? Um, how could we ever stop screening passengers as we do now in uh, air travel, given that um, the... Uh, the consequences of there being a uh, terrorist incident in the absence of screening would be so deleterious that no one would want to run that risk. And yet we, we haven't got any way of measuring what the objective yep. risk is. Likewise here, it seems to me there's an interface between two things. One is about the epidemiology. If I slow economic activity in a particular way, I reduce the rate at which the disease disseminates and the ultimate level of uh, incidence of infection. And I can kind of put a number on how, how valuable it is to reduce the spread of the disease. And I can kind of put a number on what's lost when I um, reduce economic activity. But what I don't know, do I, is the quantitative relationship between reduced economic activity and slowing of the spread of the disease. So how do I know that the cost I'm paying by let's say, having everyone uh, work in place for a couple of weeks um, is too high or too low relative to the benefit that I'm getting. And it strikes me that this decision is being made. Perhaps we don't want to call it a panic. We, we can say there's a kind of social psychological dynamic at work, but that this decision is being made um, uh, without uh, due reference to, and it may be impossible to make the reference to the relative costs and benefits of having done so. Do you see what I'm, what I'm yeah, actually that's hoping a, a to point. articulate? I think so. I think so. And if we just push your analogy a bit further. So at the moment, we have quite stringent regulations with regard to uh, airport screening before people right. get onto a plane. And um, we don't know whether we're overreacting. And there's right. no way to really know whether we're overreacting because, because you know, conditional on the fact that those, uh, you know, those procedures have been effective. Um, we don't know whether somewhat less stringent procedures would also have been equally effective. This is, you know, that's not a question that's answerable, it seems to me. So we face the same issue with regard to, uh, you know, with regard to a sheltering in place, um, you know, social distancing and so on and so forth. But I do want to say one thing, which is that long before there were any kind of government mandated restrictions on mobility or on businesses or on, on travel, um, you had a collapse of demand for for at least for airline travel. There were flights flights to Milan were going almost empty, you know one person every three rows. They were they were empty long before there was any kind of directive. And in, in fact, at a time and I, I heard part of your conversation with uh, Heather McDonald, and, you know, at a time when uh, when the president at least was expressing the view that this was not something to be terribly concerned about that it was it was going to disappear in short order. People at that time were taking matters into their own hands and, you know, uh, uh, the airlines were seeing uh, widespread cancellations and people yeah. were just non-traveling. So, so those are decisions made by individuals. Now, if those individuals happen to be overreacting, uh, uh, I don't see any legitimate case to be made to say to them, well, you know, to try to create incentives for them to, you know, to, to, to react. Oh, oh I agree with that. Yeah. The, because the, the, uh, 
the touchstone for evaluating social outcome would be the welfare of the people. And that would be a revealed preference choice that they'd be making, which we should respect. Right. That's not necessarily the only criteria for welfare, but certainly that's relevant to the, to the, to the argument. What yeah. would be another criteria for welfare? Um, I mean, <laughs> economists tend to think in the terms that you have just expressed in you know, some utilitarian terms, but, but yes, we uh, do. Um, <laughs> uh, well, there are there are of course you know debates about about nudges and about uh, paternalism and about uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know okay. whether people really do have their own uh, uh, best interests at heart or, or or have the right information to make those choices. But but as a first approximation, I, I would I would uh, I would not try to change that kind of behavior. Can we digress here just for a minute because this this <laughs> interests me greatly. I mean, I'm talking now about what the criterion are for assessing social welfare. And whether utilitarianism is a, is sufficient, and what about nudges and paternalism? Yeah. And um, the the concern I want to raise is the substitution of expert judgment or politically imposed uh, judgment for the judgment of individuals, and how that's how that could be justified. Um, so, you know. Uh, <sighs> I mean, to some extent, yeah. that's exactly what's going on with curfews, with, uh, you know, with restrictions on mobility where, you know, it's certainly happening in, in Italy and various other parts of the world where, you know, these things are being imposed in fairly draconian fashion. I mean, even in California, um, oh, Washington. Yeah. Public goods issues are one thing, you know, uh, someone doesn't take into account the cost they imposed on others when they go outside. So I'm going to compel them to stay in as a sort of... Uh, uh, the best I can do in terms of uh, social policy, since if I let people make their own decisions, they get to a bad equilibrium. Right. That's that's one thing. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, let me let me leave that one uh, to the side for the moment. What's your thinking about the market uh, and uh, asset valuation and so on? So if you look at the major stock market indexes, they, they peaked about a month ago. They're, they're down about 30%. Um, yeah. The S&P 500, the Dow, um, um, and, and even broader indexes. But uh, so there's a huge loss in asset value. So those folks, actually this, this, crisis is hitting the elderly especially hard because the folks who are close to retirement or, or, or are living, you know, are, are liquidating their assets in order to fund their retirement are also the most uh, in danger uh, if they were to contract the virus. So, so really this is, this is very unequal in terms of the way in which it's affecting the age distribution. The younger folks can probably wait uh, uh, to liquidate their savings and, you know, the, the stock market will eventually rebound and, 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 and when things start to get back to normal. So there's that. Um, that's that reflects, of course, the the collapse in profitability, right? For the you know for for many sectors. So you know, of course, you've got the airlines and the travel industry and so on, but you've also got people uh, deferring purchases of consumer durables, and you've got um, you know a whole lot of economic activity that's been curtailed, and so that's that's being reflected in these asset prices. Um, as That's well as people's expectation of the duration of the disruption. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so the asset price declines certainly reflect that the depth of the loss in profitability, at least. So, we should be clear that asset prices, at least stock prices, reflect profitability. They they don't they don't reflect, for example, wages which appear on the cost side of the of the firm's balance sheet. So it's not GDP. So GDP growth can, and this is a debate that's been going on for the past generation now. You know, we've had pretty decent GDP growth from time to time, but often with wage, wage stagnation. So the stock price is not going to respond to GDP. It will respond to the strength of the firm's balance profits. sheet. To profits. Now, so this is, this is, you know, this appears to be a, a, a Revealing to us that, that, that profits for a substantial period of time will be substantially depressed. And you can see why that might be the case, right? You've got lots of fixed costs, um, in place, no revenues or, you know, airlines without assistance, all of the airlines apparently facing bankruptcy. 
which would then, you know, which would make the, that stock completely worthless. But again, then there's the, you know, what the what the asset values are telling us is, you know, that there's some possibility of uh, government support for these companies, um, in the absence of which there will be disaster. That's that's really the message that's coming out of this. So my uh, gut instinct is to think there's so much uncertainty now that we can't really make a straight line connection between changes in the asset prices on the one hand and objective changes in the stream of profits for companies on the other. People are, uh, A, uh, they are um, trying to estimate how long the disruption is going to take place, and B, they're trying to estimate what the endogenous policy responses are going to be, which we don't know exactly what they're going to be. Um, and uh, things are moving very fast on the ground. There's a lot that's just not known about the epidemiological dynamic. I mean, about the the uh, uh, nature of the virus itself and um, processes of transmission. And we also have very incomplete information about the extent of um, infection because the testing hasn't been uh, universally applied. Well, that will so, give you volatility. I mean, that, and we're seeing that. That'll yeah, give you volatility. we're seeing volatility. And the uncertainty is always there, right? It's highly speculative. You know, trying to think about the profits of a firm even two, three years down the road is, is always full of uncertainties. More uncertain now than uh, before. It's more this uncertain pandemic. now, which is, why, which is why you see this sort of whipsaw effect, you know, where prices are going up and down so dramatically. You've got, you've got circuit breakers being triggered on both uh, the, the, the high end and the low end, you know, on a daily basis. Um, so, so that uncertainty will give you the volatility, um, but at the same time, the level decline is, is 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 very real, and I think you know is reflecting a sort of consensus opinion. So, for example, the latest forecast I saw for the second quarter growth from J.P. Morgan uh, yeah. Economist was fourteen percent contraction. Yeah, that's what I saw. That's at an annual rate, fourteen percent contraction at an, at an annual, annual rate. rate. That's yeah. at an annual rate, and that's I you know I I haven't seen a fourteen percent. I think the most you know, the quarterly annualized contraction that we've had in the post-war period, I think the largest has been 10%. But um, you'd have to probably go back to the Great Depression for something like that. Um, and then a 4% decline in the first quarter. And the first quarter was actually okay for, you know, for a month and a half. Um, and the third quarter, I don't know whether it starts to come back or not. But um, I heard, you know, I saw... On what Twitter, about intertemporal substitution? What about the idea that if the coast clears in six months from now, a lot of the spending in the quarter after that will be uh, uh, a kind of, uh, you know, backloaded exactly. uh, yeah, exactly. demand. I saw, yeah, I saw one estimate that the third quarter would be a positive 8%. Now, I think... That's what I mean. Personally, I think that's... That's, uh, that, that's, that's optimistic. Revised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might, it, it'll, it'll take longer than that. But, but basically, that's exactly right. So, you know, people who are deferring purchases of consumer, consumer durables, automobiles or electronics and so on will will provided that their incomes haven't taken a hit. I mean remember that while we are living, I mean, you know, there are people whose incomes have been cut off, you know, the unemployment yeah. claims are high, but they but their debts have not been they've not been released from their debt obligations. They still have to pay their mortgages and their student loans and their rents and you know, um so so the idea of the sort of the basic income, you know you know, one of the policies that's been banded about by pretty much every corner of the political spectrum right now is, you know, checks mailed to households. Right. Basic income type idea. Mitt Romney uh, came out with it on Monday. Adam Schiff endorsed it on Tuesday. You know, you've had different versions of this from Ro Khanna and, and, and Tim Ryan and, uh, and the president himself. So, you know, and, and, and the uh, uh, treasury secretary. Yeah. Those, those can take care of your, your expenses, you know, your day-to-day expenses, your groceries and so on, maybe partially cover rent, but they're not going to cover most of our debt obligations, especially people who are quite heavily indebted, um, or who basically need, need their regular incomes in order to pay their, their, you know, their, their, make their regular loan payments. Do you think it's reasonable to ask their creditors to simply forbear, to, to mandate uh, no, no evictions for people who don't pay their rent. No foreclosures on people who are, um, I think, you know, uh, yeah, I in think, deficit think, on their loan payments. And uh, yeah, so those those policies are already being being debated and implemented in, in various jurisdictions. That's absolutely right. You can't have under these conditions. Uh, that's right. Uh, you know, uh, but I'm contrasting two the, different ways of trying to uh, help someone who's got debt problems. One would be to send them money, and the other would be to have their creditor forbear. 
And I'm uncertain about whether it's advisable to distribute the cost of this burden sharing through the indirect method of having uh, landlords simply not collect rent that's due or um, creditors not call yeah, loans. If the, income, if the income is lost, which is going to be, which is going to happen for a very large number of people because of the layoffs, uh, if the income is lost, temporary forbearance is not going to, uh, is not going to solve the problem. When, when they come back, you know, when they're hired back, they're not going to get their, their lost wages and they may not get hired back at the same, you know. Uh, okay. Uh, so they need money. Absolutely, they need money. And, and, you know, if you're talking about a 14% contraction, uh, in the, in the second quarter of the economy, which is unevenly distributed, I mean, some of us will be quite fortunate to not lose much or lose anything at all. Um, others will lose almost everything as far as their monthly, uh, cash flows. Yeah. I mean, our universities have shut down for the time being, but uh, our paychecks have not been interrupted. Our, Paychecks have not. I mean, there will be impacts because of, you know, the fall in endowment values and so on. There'll be impacts on hiring and, 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 and perhaps on, on um, positions that are renewed on an annual basis. But for, but for you and I, we are, we are basically just shifting to online instruction um, and, uh, um, you know, trying to keep going. And, and we, we are fortunate in that we're able to do that, at least for the foreseeable future, at least for the right. time being. But if you've got a 14% contraction that's very unequally distributed, then, then you know, you've got a bunch of people losing pretty much everything and, uh, and, and others doing okay. And uh, it's just impossible to imagine that forbearance and, you know, holding back on evictions for three months or six months is going to help those folks out. Uh, all it will do is delay the inevitable. Uh, they're not going to be able to suddenly pay their bills. It also impoverishes the landlords who uh, still have to pay their uh, loans on uh, the mortgages on the properties that they own and still have to pay the taxes on those properties and the right. um, and, 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 that's, and so on. Exactly. And that's the form, uh, that's the problem as, as well for, for businesses, right? Because they have, they have, you know, they're partially financed by debt. And, uh, and well, doesn't this point them, extend to requiring businesses to, uh, offer us, uh, pay with up for people who are, uh, you know, absent sick leave and things of this kind? Uh, because we want to maintain the income flow to the employee, but the yeah. business, uh, doesn't pull that money out of the air. It has to somehow finance the, uh, sick leave payments. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly right. And so that has to be facilitated. I think that is definitely part of the conversation, right? Um, so one of the things that the Fed is doing, uh, um, which, which I think is, is valuable is it has launched this commercial paper funding facility, which, you know, effectively allows it to buy a commercial paper. So to extend short term loans to businesses, um, and this is something that happened very late during the financial crisis. And I feel like, you know, this is one of the facilities that should have been, uh, um, uh, should have been instituted earlier during the financial crisis, but they've done it very early now. And so the Fed is able to, at least, at least for firms that are issuing commercial paper, trying to borrow in the short term to meet payroll or to roll over the existing debt. Um, the, the Fed, Fed can buy that paper and, and Fed, infuse cash. Can, the Fed can buy that paper, and then when that comes due, they can buy the they can buy the paper that's uh, that's released to refinance and so on, and they can keep doing that. They can keep doing that indefinitely. So that's one way to do it. But then again, what you're doing is you're creating debt obligations, uh, and as you said, the money doesn't come from thin air. Um, so if you're losing your revenue from your sales, uh, maintaining your workforce to the extent that you can, paying your bills, um, there's going to be that 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 deficit over this period of time. That's going to have to be made up. Some businesses will be able to do it. Some won't. Some will go under. And when they go under, um, they when they go bankrupt, when those uh, storefronts for the retail establishments go empty, when the employees with specific human capital skills are unemployed and those skill employee matches are lost, uh, there will be enormous adjustment costs in any recovery in order to... Um, Exactly. Re so even reorganize. The, even the creditors will suffer, right? Because uh, there's no point in being a creditor to someone who can't pay you. So, so you know, so we're all in this. So, you know, we're in this together from an epidemiological sense that we could all be infected by anybody. Yeah. But we're and, all in this together economically. I mean, it's, it's just as tightly connected. Yeah. Um, but very uh, unequal with respect to vulnerabilities and, and, and risks. 
So this is an opportunity to um, address some of the inequality concerns that predate the uh, the pandemic, or not? Yeah. How how do you see that? Well, so I mean, what what in particular do you have in mind? So, for example, with regard to healthcare, I think this is really really brought the problem front and center, you know, we are. Yeah, I had two things in mind, yeah. mainly access to health care and yeah. the, uh, you know, the argument that Bernie Sanders and others have been making about the universalizing the public provision of health care yeah. um, on the one hand, and also about universal income support or some yeah. kind of income yeah. support cushioning people. This is a monster shock, but cushioning people yeah. from the shocks of life in a, in a more, Generalized sense. And I have the impression that if you look back over the course of the 20th century at the evolution of the welfare state in the Western uh, uh, wealthy democracies, that the exigencies of war and national emergency played an important role in creating precedents for institutional innovation that expanded the, you know, the, the security of the, of the welfare state for everybody after the war had long since gone away. Exactly right. That's what happened with the British uh, National Health Service uh, uh, after the war. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and um, you know, there are two policies that I have been thinking about and occasionally writing about that, that, yeah. that came to this. You know, one is a universal basic income, which was associated with uh, Andrew Yang's uh, campaign. Uh, yeah. But of course, it predates him. You know, it's, it's, it's a conversation that's been going on for quite some time. Um, and one policy that I, I wish would be discussed a bit more often, you Universal basic income is discussed a lot. Um, it's out there. But the one policy that I really wish would be discussed more often is, is uh, universal accounts at the Federal Reserve. At, at the moment, only banks uh, can have accounts at the Federal Reserve, and they, they settle claims against each other um, you know, through, through, the Fed, you know, through the Federal Reserve system overnight. Um, and there's absolutely no reason why we all couldn't do it. The technology is there. It's really... I think very easy to set up and authenticate. And, uh, you know, these two things to me go hand in hand, that if you're going to have a universal basic income and what's being proposed right now, I think according to the treasury secretary, they want to, they're planning on two checks to households, just physical checks mailed to households. Now think about that a little bit. Somebody pointed out just a couple of days ago on on, on Twitter that, you know, who's going to receive these checks? There will be people who have filed taxes, who have an address, you know, to which the treasury can mail these checks, who haven't moved, who haven't got divorced or separated, you know, who haven't just come into adulthood, you know, uh, or or, or who had incomes that were too low to even declare taxes. Uh, You know, a lot of people are not going to be getting these checks, or they're going to get them at the wrong place. Or, you know, they may, you know, they may get get them at the right address, but they may be, you know, holed up at some other location. Okay, it's so there's there's some kind of an intrinsic error rate or targeting rate and inefficiency, and it's very you know it's, it seems unnecessarily uh, uh, clumsy. But quite apart from that, my argument. Uh, so so we can talk about universal basic income in a minute. But my argument for federal accounts, accounts at the Federal Reserve, really, you know, it goes back to the financial crisis. And in the financial crisis, one of the arguments that was made was we have to protect the banking system because we have to protect the payment system. And one of the most crucial functions of the banking system is to allow transactions, economic transactions to be made for people, you know, to, to, to actually, you know, engage in transactions with each other and make, make the necessary payments for us to receive our paychecks and to, 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 to spend them. And this having uh, the ability of accounts at the Fed would have us, uh, uh, you know, would allow people to have safety. There's no reason to insure these accounts. They're completely safe. Um, and the ability to make transactions in a way that protects the payment system absolutely and under any circumstances, no matter what crisis hits. So the payment system would be protected. No matter what's happening to the banking system, you wouldn't have to bail out the banks indirectly to protect the payment system. I thought that was an argument. That well, it, let me just uh, be clear about this. What do you mean by the payment system? You mean when I purchase something, uh, I have the capacity to transfer funds to this person who's selling the goods to me as an individual consumer? That's right. So you have the, you have the capacity. So, you know, you have a, let's say you pay your rent check uh, or if you, you know, or your mortgage payment to a bank, um, you have the capacity to make transactions. If you use your credit card, let's say for uh, transactions, you will then use your, um, 
your checking account to then transfer funds to the credit card company, which transfers funds to the to the vendors and so on and so forth. Um, In what way was that uh, uh, threatened by the uh, financial crisis of 2008? Just bankruptcy. You know, 12 out of the 13 major banks were facing bankruptcy at that time. And, uh, you know, your your federal deposits in the banking system are only insured up to a certain amount. Uh, you know, they, the, 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 the FDIC insurance was increased during the crisis, but at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's a fixed amount. There's a limit to how much insurance. No, have. I understand. But, but long before um, we would have gotten to the point that uh, the Bank of America could not honor its uh, obligation to me because of my checking account balance, right. would we not have encountered the problem of, financial institutions failing because of the inability to roll over their indebtedness and the, uh, uh, the sort of run on the bank kind of problem. Yes, exactly. So this was exactly. So, this so that's was, not so a payment system problem, is it? Or not in well, a way well, that you no, mean no, it? But, but a, fin- a financial institution that runs into those kind of problems raises questions for regulators about whether or not that institution should be allowed to fail. And one of the arguments made to prevent it from failing it's precisely because you don't want to jeopardize the payment system. Okay. Um, of course, there are other there are other uh, reasons that are put forward, you know, to to keep you know lending flowing and so on. Right. But That's... the point is the point is that you know if if it's going bankrupt, why not let it go bankrupt? And if people's uh, you know deposits in checking accounts in banks were similar to what are now uh, called money market mutual funds, where you know where they're where they're pretty safe, but you know they're not absolutely guaranteed. Um, then people could have guaranteed accounts at the Fed and somewhat less guaranteed, but maybe more uh, lucrative accounts in commercial banks. And they could transfer from one to the other and they could make their payments in either way that they like. You know, they could contain, they, they could they could carry on making them the way they do now, but at least they'd have that backstop. In addition to that, if you had to inject a huge amount of liquidity into the economy, as you have to do right now, through something like a, a temporary basic income, uh, it could be done very, very quickly. Right, as, uh, simply, you know, by, uh, simply by crediting the accounts. accounts. Yeah, you credit the, by simply by crediting crediting these accounts. Now we don't have this kind of thing in place, so it's a bit hard to imagine. What What's special but, about the Fed? I don't. I'm not sure everyone will understand uh, who hasn't studied monetary economics why the Fed is not a bank like other banks. Well, it can't go bankrupt. I mean, it has. Why not? The, because it has the capacity to create money. It has to. It has the capacity to create the the the, the unit of count. I mean, it can credit. I mean, it has a balance sheet, but... but Well, the uh, metaphor would be when people come to uh, ask for their money from the Fed, the Fed can run a printing press and hand them greenbacks and uh, honor its obligations in that way. Yes, if they really want greenbacks, sure. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm trying to make it concrete, uh, just as an illustration of the idea. Yes, yes, I, I think that's one way to look at it, that they... You know, or the, any in any case, checks drawn on an account for which the Fed says there's a positive balance are legal tender, and people have to accept those checks uh, in uh, uh, obligation in acknowledgement of the debt having been discharged. Exactly, that's exactly the status of reserves at the central bank that are held by commercial banks right now. So you know those are you know as good as cash, and and uh, so 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 they would they would be safe, but. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, yeah, it just seems to me that this is uh, a, a, this is something that, uh, you know, sometimes referred to as postal banking or, you know, there are various names given to it. It's an idea that's been floated around since the 1930s at least, but it doesn't get much serious discussion. And, uh, you know, I'm just not quite sure why. Individual but, accounts with the central bank of the country. Yeah, at one uh, time. In is, lieu of individual accounts with commercial banks. In addition to, I mean, there's no, there's no, the individual accounts at commercial bank would, would probably allow you a lot more flexibility, you know, to, to pay credit cards, to do, you know, all kinds of things to, you know, they, they, there's a lot more you could probably do with those. But if you can transfer back and forth from Fed accounts, um, you can have at least part of your, 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 uh, are, are these central bank have, accounts extant anywhere in the world at the present time? Not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge, but they have, they're, you know, they, from time to time, you get uh, you get a discussion about it, and and then it fades away. But uh, but not to yeah. my knowledge. I mean, the idea of postal banking 
is uh, yeah, there, there may be there may be places that have implemented something like that. There are certainly, postal savings accounts have uh, you know many 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 countries have. I think Japan has a system, uh, you know, where you can have savings accounts of this kind. But um, India used to have, maybe they still do. Uh, there are countries that have something fairly close to it, but but not quite. And you know. So, now, one of the points you make for this in the nice piece that uh, you should tell people where they could find it that you wrote about this um, is that uh, the existence of universal accounts at the central bank would get us out of the business of subsidizing commercial banks who borrow, in effect, from us when we put money yeah. into them and yeah. then turn around and make loans on that money and are not troubled by the prospect that should those loans fail, they won't be able to uh, pay back the, uh, the account holder because we have deposit insurance where, uh, in effect, the federal government is guaranteeing the repayment of those funds. And so it's indirectly subsidizing risk-taking yep. by the yep. commercial bank as it invests the funds yep. of its depositors. Absolutely. So this is the, this is the debate about the so-called Volcker Rule, right? Uh, yeah. so the idea that you know, deposits can help to finance uh, proprietary trading uh, by, by commercial banks. And... Uh, yeah, this you know, uh, the, there's another aspect to this, which is that if your deposits at a, at a commercial bank are insured, you really don't need to worry about what that bank is doing uh, on the asset side. You know uh, how risky right. the asset position is. So there's a moral hazard problem there's there. There's a moral hazard problem, exactly. Yeah. And, and basically, if, if people are allowed to have uh, accounts at the Fed, there's absolutely no reason to have an FDIC at all. Yeah, you know, uh, like I said, you know, your your, check, your commercial bank accounts would be like money market mutual funds. So they'll, you know, they'll pay you a bit more probably than the Fed accounts and you can do other things with them. Um, or, or they may be more expensive, you know, they, because of the services that come with them. But, but the point is that you have the safety if you want it to the extent that you want it. But the reason why I, I propose this actually in the context of basic income. So you mentioned the piece. So, I, you know, I've written about this a couple of times before, but the most recent piece in relation to the policies that were floated by Mitt Romney and uh, Adam Schiff and others this week. That's on my blog. Now, people can just write my, you know, write my name and type the word blog and they'll find it. It's the latest post up there on my blog. This is Rajiv Sethi at Blogspot. Uh... That's right. That's the, that's the, so they, they, they can see that. But the, the reason I mentioned it in this context was because that's the ideal mechanism, it seems to me, to implement a universal basic income. Either a temporary one, as is being proposed now, or or, or a more uh, or a permanent one, as was proposed by by the Yang campaign and, and various other folks. Um, now, let me just say one thing about universal basic income, because I, I know we disagree on this, but and, and I'd like to have that debate. But 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 let me just say one thing about about universal basic income. Right now, we are facing an economic catastrophe that's very generalized, very widespread. Uh, you know, there there. Yeah, there are inequalities in the degree to which people are affected, but right now there are no regions that that escape uh, pretty much. I, I would say you know every urban area, every every area is going to have some people who are going to be hurt very badly, yeah, and others are going to be relatively unscathed. Uh, but it's generalized. You know, there's a feeling of you know systemic collapse, and 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 so there's an impetus. There's a you know the idea of a trillion dollar stimulus. Uh, you know, has bipartisan support. And you've got people uh, um, who seem to think that this is a very good idea. And, and, and it is. I'm not saying that it's not. But the kind of emergency conditions under which we are living in a generalized way right now are precisely what certain localities have been experiencing for a generation. There are parts of this country where there were one or two big employers. Yeah. And, you know, the, in the whole town was essentially employed either by them or by subsidiary yeah. firms. They shut down partly because of uh, trade shocks, partly because of technology shocks. Once those big, big employers shut down, those towns have been devastated. And we've had, you know, many, many stories written about these, these places. Yeah. There's a book that came out just this week by, by Anne Case and, and Angus Deaton called Deaths of Despair and the yeah. Future of Capitalism. And they document some of the implications of this with regard to, uh, you know, drug and alcohol uh, um, uh, abuse, uh, suicide, uh, you know, um, liver disease, uh, untimely death. There's, you know, there's a, there's a decline in, you know, uh, um, life expectancy. There's an increase in midlife mortality among, among, you know, certain demographic 
groups in this country, especially that varies by region, and that can be associated with general economic decline or with trade impacted uh, uh, depression, localized depression in the yes, certain yes, yes. I, I I believe that's I believe that's now pretty well documented. There's yeah. uh, you know there's uh, a work by David Otter and his colleagues and and um, Case and Deaton and so on. Now, for those folks, what we are all living through right now has been, um, you know, has been, a, you know, a condition of life for a generation. And, you know, the, the, the one advantage that I see of a universal basic income is without trying to really identify where those pressure points are, what places are collapsing and which others are thriving and directing resources, you know, pinpointing them to the places most in need. What this does is it sets up an automatic mechanism for the areas, for areas such as that to have at least a floor in local expenditures. I mean, at least a floor in what the people are getting in, which can then be spent locally, at least on non-tradables, you know, on, on whether it is grocery stores or restaurants, or that can keep the local businesses alive. So so, so here's the thing that, you know, yeah. would cause someone like me to, to at least pause and not yeah. to say yes or no, but just to have the concern. So one of the things that I would want to happen when there's trade impact is a reallocation of resources, including uh, having people move. Yeah, yeah. I just give that as one example. I want I want there to be an adjustment to the new situation that uh, recognizes the economic realities. If I soften the blow of the of the uh, cost uh, burden of uh, having industry shut down or whatever. I, I lock people into patterns of behavior that might not be the most efficient, or at least I change the relative cost calculation. So I'm, not, I'm not saying that's not something we should do. I'm, I'm simply saying yeah. that's a cost to put, be put on the other side of the ledger. I understand the argument, but I think it's an academic, it's an abstract argument that, that doesn't carry much empirical force. And I'll tell you why. It's, it's firstly because people don't move. So this is what the Dorn, you know, David Dorn and uh, David Otter and Hansen uh, article on the China shock does is it shows for a decade or so people just people just live with the deteriorating conditions and some move and and others don't. That's one that's one factor. The movement, labor mobility in response to these shocks is extremely slow, even without any such. Uh, Why not uh, subsidize mobility rather than uh, give yes, them a, yes, a floor? That's that's that's, that's uh, uh, yeah. That's 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 another possibility. I think I think that's what uh, certainly considering. But let me give you the other argument, which is that those people who can retool who can move or who have you know either their individual characteristics or the good fortune to to be able to adjust um do move they do move and i suspect that they would move even if there was a universal basic income it's not going to make you fabulously wealthy it's it's just putting a floor on your consumption uh, and and the people who are moving now under current conditions, I suspect most of them would move i don't think empirically I, and honestly i I have to confess that i am you know, this is guesswork in part, but I don't think the patterns of mobility are going to be much affected by this. But what will be affected is 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 the sort of local ecology, uh, um, you know, of businesses. So you know, the the the, the floor on consumption is, is also a floor on expenditure, and a lot of that expenditure is going to be local. Some of that expenditure will be on you know on online stuff that's delivered from outside. But you're going to have people going to local restaurants or local bars or local, you know, uh, uh, urgent care facilities or whatever it might be. Um, and, and those local expenditures are going to sustain some level of local economy in places where the economy has been completely devastated and just left for dead. So, so that's my argument. It is that, you know, we see as a society a level of anxiety right now that some parts of the country have been seeing, you know, for a long, long time. And if uh, if a basic income now, a temporary basic income now makes sense for for the whole country, you know why uh, why not consider it? You know when the, this crisis has passed. That's, that's Again, the just just to push back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I can identify by industry or by region um, people whose livelihood has been impacted by some exogenous event like a trade adjustment. Yeah. And I can direct assistance to them, and perhaps I can do it more effectively if they have accounts at the Fed. I can identify them, and I can direct assistance to them. Universal assistance is going to have less target efficiency because it's going to be distributing benefits to everyone, including the majority of people who are not adversely impacted by these shifts. 
so well, that's, I, I, I'm not sure about that. Let me let me let me tell you what I think about that, and then you, yeah. then we can we can try, you know uh, see if we can get consensus on this. So let's take policies like uh, uh, universal access to uh, schooling, yeah, or Medicare or Social Security. Yeah, there are certainly these are universal policies, and in, in fact, they're popular in part because they're universal, and they, they carry with them what I consider to be extremely valuable, which is the universality of dignity and equality of dignity, which is that you know you're not really saying, okay, you are in need, and you know this other person is not, and so I will help you, and I will not help them, and I, I believe that that creates indignities that bother me. That that's one reason why I prefer universal policies in general. But leave that to one side. Let's let's talk about this issue of. Uh, uh, because it's a very important issue that's part of the current debate about targeting. So, you know, the the, the basic income plan of Khanna and uh, and Ryan uh, basically only wants payments to go to people with less than $65,000 in their last uh, uh, tax return. Whereas the opposite is that, uh, you know, you get the checks going to, as some people put it, you know, the, 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 the Trump sons, right? Um, and, and the question is, oh, isn't, you know, isn't the fact that it's less targeted uh, uh, mean that it's wasteful or in some sense uh, suboptimal or, you know, n- not doing the job. Yes. You could be doing. In in general, you know, what you're doing with the universal basic income is giving people uh, uh, purchasing power, right? The power to, to consume goods and services. The economy produces a certain amount of good, goods and services. That's, that's what our GDP tells us, right? Um, and to the extent that they can produce those, uh, consume those goods and services, they get a greater share than they otherwise would, right? The people who are receiving, receiving these checks. Now, fiscally, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna finance this either with borrowing or with taxes. Let's suppose that you finance it with taxes. If you have a universal basic income, because of the breadth of coverage is gonna require you to raise more in taxes, those taxes are going to fall on the people who uh, um, who are least in need. And in a sense, the net payments that they're receiving may not be very different than they would be under a targeted policy. Uh, so the point I'm really trying to make is that you need to take into account what you're giving millionaires and business, billionaires in universal basically. You need to take into account the funding mechanism. And that funding mechanism is going to, and then look at what they're getting in net terms. Um, and you can easily think of examples. And I think Greg Mankey a few years ago said, you know, basically that it's entirely equivalent. The targeted and non-targeted income policies are fully equivalent. If you fund them, there's a way of funding them in such a way to make them actually, actually identical. You know, you're just talking about, you're talking about transfers and the right way to now think this about presumes a progressive tax system, I assume, right? Such that several people are paying more. Yeah. Yeah, but that's almost, uh, you know, inescapable, right? Okay, I take the point. Yeah, yeah. So so I think that it's not clear. Let me just put it that way. I won't make a stronger statement than that. I I think it's not clear that the universal policies um, are, in a sense, benefiting the people at the high end of the income distribution. You know, they're more costly. Those costlies, uh, those costs are going to be imposed on those people more than other people. So, so on a net basis, it's not clear to me that that that, that that's a strong counter argument. But um, I don't want to go too far with that. Uh, let me let me ask you one final thing. You'd mentioned in our conversation before we started recording that you were uh, working with Danielle Allen, the political philosopher, yeah. uh, the group of people thinking about the broader philosophic. Um, uh, issues that were raised, the social justice issues that were raised by the pandemic and our reaction to it. Yeah, tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean the the so Daniel just brought together. This is the uh, the kind of thing that Daniel does so amazingly well to you know to tackle big questions from different disciplinary points of view. So she you know she just pulled together a group of people, and I I came into it relatively late. Um, but uh, fortunately, not too late to participate. And, and so she's basically pulled together um, what might end up being a, a white paper or a publication uh, um, and maybe may spawn other pieces of writing. But trying to deal with the kinds of trade-offs we're making right now, um, 
not just in terms of the costs and benefits that we economists tend to focus on, um, but more broadly in terms of the costs to liberty, to democracy, to freedom, to uh, the political process. Uh, you know, how can we respond to this crisis in a way that preserves our institutions, uh, you know, preserves things that we value about our uh, you know, non-economic uh, what, what are some of the concrete threats to our institutions posed by this crisis? Well, for example, uh, for example, the degree to which the governor or a mayor, the mayor of a city or the governor of a state can impose restrictions on people's mobility. Yeah. You know, they may have certain, you know, considerable benefits in the moment, but one doesn't want to necessarily set a precedent for, yeah. you know, uh, authoritarian uh, um, actions in the future. And she argues, and uh, at some point this, this paper will be public at the moment, you know, it's not being circulated publicly, but she argues that, um, you know, there are arguments that can be made in good faith today uh, that cause a change of institutions that can then be exploited by people arguing in bad faith tomorrow. And, and this is a concern that we ought to be thinking about. And this is, uh, you know, Daniel to me is, you know, is just one of the most interesting and important thinkers, you know, in the public sphere right now in, in America. And so I think this is just... For those who don't know, Daniel Allen is professor of politics uh, and political philosophy at Harvard and director of the Srafa Center for the Study of Ethics at Harvard. Um, right. And, and, um, and you and I both were involved with the volume that she edited. Yeah. Yeah. And difference so, without domination. That's right. That's right. That should be out by University of Chicago Press this year. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, that's right. So these are bigger issues even than we've been discussing. You know, what, what are the impacts? So well, did not the uh, short-term reaction on weren't some elections postponed or canceled someplace? Yes. Uh, so that thing, so that's exactly the kind of trade-off that we need to really think about very carefully. So you know, so Florida, Arizona, and Illinois decided to hold the elections last Tuesday, while Ohio canceled them, and Ohio canceled them in the face of a judge's decision uh, disallowing the cancellation, which was then reversed. I understand, but but. That's exactly the kind of decision that needs to be thought about very carefully. Um, you know, what, what are the procedures really under which such uh, decisions should be made? What are the criteria? What are the, you know, what are the some of the intangible costs that they impose on us moving forward? And in a federal system, it strikes me that this kind of uh, question about uh, the authority of decision makers at different levels of the system to make uh, freedom de- uh, limiting impositions uh, is even uh, starker. I mean, whose responsibility is it? Is it can the f- president order a state to shut down its schools, for example? Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. I, I I don't know, but the president can do a fair amount. Uh, uh, you know. And- the war powers. I mean, there's the oh, the uh, national emergency. That, yeah, um, yeah. They can they can certainly you know I I believe repurpose factories and yeah they and can mobilize yeah mobilize and, and maybe should be because I think that one of the most urgent uh, shortfalls that we are facing right now is um, demand for ventilators. Uh, demand for ventilators and masks, but especially ventilators. Uh, well, both actually. Uh, and I gather that they're operating mainly on persuasion. They're asking private concerns to um, uh, make materials available. Uh, yeah, construction companies. So, yeah. so, so the construction companies to donate their stock uh, because they have these uh, N95 masks. Um, but the conditions under which some healthcare workers are operating at the moment are really quite appalling. If you think about it, they're putting their lives at risk and they're having you to reuse masks and, you know, uh, you know, there have been emergency room physicians in critical condition. There are people who have died trying to save lives of others. It's just, it seems to me that that these are the kinds of actions that the federal government can and should be taking very, 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 very quickly. I don't think it's an overreaction at all. So what are you thinking about saying in the context of Daniel Allen's uh, project to, you know, review the uh, ethics of uh, public 
imposition in this uh, crisis situation? So, so my contribution is quite narrow and limited to, you know, trying to deal with the economic shocks and how to deal with the economic shocks. And my contribution there really is to try to point out that there's two kinds of economic uh, um, effects that are going on, what might be called uh, effects on composition and effects on scale. And, and we haven't talked much about the effects on composition, which is that there's a, there's a collapse in demand for certain types of uh, um, goods and services, you know, yeah. travel, entertainment, and so on. At the Restaurants, same time hotel, theaters, and so on. Yeah, at the same time as there's spiking demand for, um, you know, hand sanitizers and toilet paper and, and you know, the things that people are hoarding. Uh, Delivery services. Delivery services, absolutely. Amazon has hired, you know, 100,000 workers and up the wage a bit. Um, and uh, of course, the healthcare service, uh, healthcare services, and, and, and then Indeed. the equipment. And the question then becomes: Well, how do we deal with changing the composition of supply? You know, can the market do it, or, or, or you know, does one need to have non-market interventions to do it? So that's that's one category of in- intervention. And the other is on scale, which is what we spend a lot of time talking about today, which is that there's a contraction of overall economic activity. Why would you expect the market not to be uh, able to handle the composition problem? Well, you know, if it's entirely a market solution, then they would have to, they would have to see profit in it. Right. Uh, Now, if you're going to repurpose a factory, produce a whole bunch of ventilators and the crisis passes and you're stuck with this, this stock, you know, and there's no buyer of last resort. Yeah. You know, um, Why would you take the risk? Why not just, you know, just hold off? And you're not letting ventilators trade at uh, any kind of market clearing price either. Presumably you're administering administering the price of ventilators. That raises raises, uh, uh, other concerns with regard to um, prioritization, right, of of, uh, healthcare services. Uh, You know, that's that's right. I mean, we don't, um, you know, many people would... There have been requests, by the way. There was an article where the, you know, there are people uh, with, a, you know, with substantial wealth who have tried to uh, procure ventilators for themselves just in case. Um, and, and, and you know, most people, and sort of understandably, cringe at that. You know, they, they they don't look upon that very favorably. So we don't, well, especially we don't, if you're hoarding the ventilator. If you have it sitting there, you're not using it, but you have it as insurance against the prospect that you that's might right. need it. But isn't that a classic market solution, Glenn? Isn't that exactly what one means when we say leave it to the market? I mean, you know, people are allowed to engage in market transactions for hoarding, right? Which is why, you know, the market, the market responses to the problem of the changes in the composition of demand, uh, you know, and this is the case that I, I, I make in this piece is not, is not uh, adequate. It really requires something else. I see it as an interesting problem. I mean, on the other hand, if uh, people are, if I fix the price of toilet paper at a low number and don't allow it to go up and people are afraid they won't be able to find it when they go to the market next week, mm-hmm. I'll end up with a lot of people buying cheap toilet paper and keeping it in their basements and creating the shortage that they're afraid of. Whereas if I allowed for the price to go up or if I allowed for um, a kind of arbitrage, um, I, I would I would undercut that uh, hoarding dynamic. So yeah, but I think that I think that the better way to deal with that is to simply ration uh, uh, sales. I mean, to you know, to to have people. Uh, um, yeah, I get it. To limit know, the amount they can buy. Limit the amount that they can buy. You don't want to. You don't want to be uh, pricing people out of toilet paper. You know, and and in fact, that's what's happening with the with. Uh, Cleaning supplies. There, there are people who are, you know, who have been hoarding and selling on Amazon, making, you know. Uh, yeah, I know. Isn't this a, this is a classic application of Marty Weissman's old? Do uh, you remember that prices versus quantities paper of his from so long yes, ago? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate he's no longer here with us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's right. That's right. I I do think that you know economists as a whole. I mean, and neither you nor I, I would say, are typical economists, but as a whole tend to think uh, that the price mechanism is uh, is always the better default solution i, I you know I, I don't think I think it's sometimes be. a better solution than the quantity imposed uh, regulation that yeah. uh, but it's not always the best solution <laughs> that's the point and and we're not we're not facing uh, typical conditions but of course it does raise questions which i hope we can maybe have another episode on at some point about yes. whether or not you know 
we think about situations in in crisis mode as we are doing right now has lessons for thinking about them differently when when things return to normal you know are they as you said you know many changes many big changes in society have come on the heels of major disruptions like war and the depression and uh, they caused us to rethink uh, how matters should be arranged under more normal times and and it'd be interesting to think about well you know does this give us an opportunity to think about how to do things better when we're back to normal I think that's a suitable final word for us here. It, it uh, brings to mind Rahm Emanuel's, you know, never let a crisis go to waste, but in a different sense. I mean, he sort of, I understood, meant it as a strategic opportunity to yes. fix the agenda for my political program. Yes. But you mean it as an intellectual opportunity to think differently about business as usual and perhaps to gain some insight. That's, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm grateful to you for for pointing out the distinction. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, I certainly didn't mean it in the way that Ram Emanuel meant it, but the phrase itself is, uh, is apt, yes. Yeah. All right, Rajiv Sethi, Barnard College, Columbia University, thanks so much. I appreciate you giving me uh, your time here to discuss these matters at the Glenn Show. Always a pleasure, again. Thank you very much. You're welcome.